Hey guys, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Will. I'm Christian, and today we are thrilled to have Professor Daniel Allen with us. Daniel Allen is a political theorist who has published broadly in political sociology and the history of political thought. She's a professor in the government department at Harvard University and at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, as well as a director of the Edmund J. Safra Center for Ethics in Harvard University. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor. One of the topics we like to ask our guests about is inflection points, pivotal moments in one's career or personal life. Can you share with us about an inflection point from your life? Sure. Well, I should first say good afternoon, Will. Good afternoon, Christian. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the invitation to conversation. So I am going to share what at the moment seemed like a very small inflection point, but which in some sense turned out to have big consequences when I was an assistant professor at the University of Chicago pretty early on in my tenure. I found myself one day on a committee assembled by the Chicago Tribune, I believe, to pick the uh, winner of the Harold Washington Book Prize for the year. And the person I was sitting next to was a woman named Christina Valaitis, executive director of the Illinois Humanities Council. And she started telling me about a program the Illinois Humanities Council was trying to get going that involved providing humanities courses, high-quality humanities courses, to low-income adults. And she was lamenting the fact that she couldn't find any university partners to participate. And I heard her talk about this program, and something in me just sort of leapt up. And I knew immediately that that was a program that I wanted to be part of. It was a kind of teaching that I wanted to do, sort of um, you know, evening, night teaching for low-income adults. So I said, you know, literally, gosh, I'd love to do that. And next thing I knew, we'd built a partnership between the University of Chicago and the Illinois Humanities Council. And we'd begun a whole program of these humanities courses for low-income adults. But I had also thereby uh, begun to play a role in some sense in humanities policy. So I ended up on the Illinois Humanities Board of Directors and eventually on the Mallon Foundation Board, which I'm now the chair of. And that's the largest um, philanthropic funder of humanities in higher education in the country. We've got about $6 billion in assets and so forth. And at the end of the day, I think one of the reasons I ended up with the opportunity to lead in that kind of philanthropic capacity is because uh, somebody was having a challenge about something I cared about. My heart spoke to me, and I um, you know, put my hand up and said it was something I wanted to get involved in. So why is humanity so important to you? Well, you know, we human beings are complex organisms, and we're very good at thinking about how to strengthen our bodies, right? We get the concept of exercise and so forth. I think we're less good at understanding how to strengthen our minds. These days, we are pretty good at understanding how to strengthen our minds with regard to math. You're a math major, for instance. We talk a lot about STEM education. But we've lost track of the fact that a key set of our muscles are uh, what we do with words. So that's literature, it's art, it's philosophy, it's religion, it's history. Um, but we need that engagement with that incredibly powerful um, part of our brain, our spirit, our thinking muscles um, in order to shape the world together. So from my point of view, the humanities and the liberal arts are fundamental to educating any uh, person in a democracy for effective citizenship. One thing that as a major in the humanities and social sciences I've struggled with is grappling between the importance of that kind of education for who I am as a person with the importance of STEM education for what a lot of people think the future of the economy is going to look like. How do you advise your students to deal with that delicate balance? 
Um, I think that is a terrific question, and it goes to the heart of what we're all wrestling with in education policy right now. There's no question that we, we absolutely need STEM education to support the economy, to support opportunity, and so forth. But my belief is we ought to find ways of providing a STEM education that align it and supplement it with humanities and social sciences education. So, for example, I've been really struck uh, by and concerned about data that shows a correlation between um, investing a student's investment in STEM education and a lower likelihood of political participation. There's a lot of data at this point that STEM majors are a heck of a lot less likely to vote or write letters to their congressperson or to the editor and so forth than humanities and social sciences majors. I can't believe that this is a necessary feature of STEM education. So I believe that we need to rethink the question of how we integrate STEM education and humanities and social sciences education. Because at the end of the day, those key technological skills that are so valuable for the economy uh, need to align with the capacities that support citizenship. I think the future of a prosperous democracy, specifically, <laughs> right, depends on being able to bring those two kinds of intellectual resources together. And uh, as we're on the topic with learning and teaching, um, with our, when I was doing my research, I uh, saw an interview with Cornell West, who seems to be your mentor, and he's an American philosopher. And he talks about learning how to die. And that really interested me. And I just wanted to maybe um, get your description of that. Sure. So Cornell West is a teacher and great friend. So yes, he is among my mentors. Um, he helped me a lot when I was an undergraduate having a rough time. So he's somebody who lifted me up and helped me intellectually and in my spirit. And I'm very grateful to him. So learning how to die, I mean, that's sort of the secret of learning how to live. Um, and I do remember a long time ago now, more than 20 years, classes with Cornell about Socrates, right? So Socrates is that person who learned how to die and his commitment to the truth. He knew what he stood for. He had a sense of full integrity such that he was clear about what his own limits and choices were. And that's, I think, what it means to learn how to die, to understand uh, what's required of you for integrity so that you know the limits um, of your choices, where you'll say no if need be, and also so that you can be sure that as you take your steps through life one after another, um, you're consistently acting a way, in a way in which you won't have regrets um, if that should be the moment that you're called uh, from this earth. So on the topic of making sure you live your life in a way where you have integrity and making sure you don't have regrets, one of the things you talked about in your book, Our Declaration, is how you feel you learned more from the students you were teaching at a night school than you did from undergraduates at one of the most elite institutions in the United States. Right, yes, that, sorry guys. <laughs> does that experience make you regret at all the path you took in reaching the very tops of academia, or do you still feel like the direction you took was the most rewarding and important one for you? So that's an interesting question. That's a good question. Um, so I don't, by any stretch of the imagination, regret a minute of time I've spent teaching undergraduates at elite institutions. It's a privilege and an honor without any question. Um, to be a teacher simply is a privilege and an honor in all contexts. I think for me, what was so important about that teaching of night students was uh, that they gave back to me um, a really immediate sense of how education matters for life, not just for credentials, not just for the next job, but for human fulfillment and an ability to be the owner of one's own course. 
That has made me a better teacher on college campuses, I believe. But it has also meant that as I've lived in universities, I've been able to think about ways of opening up their work and to connect the work of universities to a broader community of learners. Um, I also, I mean, the other important thing to say is I could never have become the teacher that I am without having passed through all of these remarkable elite colleges and universities. So I don't regret at all having multiple worlds. I just consider it my responsibility to figure out how to knit these worlds together. Staying on our declaration, uh, one of the things you wrote in the book that really struck me was that you felt that libertarianism dominates our political imaginations. Obviously, lots has happened in politics since then. The Republican Party nominated a successful presidential candidate who opposed any cuts to the biggest entitlement programs. Uh, the Democrats were dragged to uh, Democrats of all ideological stripes, supporting a bill that would give Medicare for all. Uh, and just recently, the Republican Party itself uh, advanced a budget that would increase spending not just on national defense, but also non-defense discretionary spending. Uh, do those trends make you feel that libertarianism no longer predominates political imaginations, or do you hold by what you wrote? That's an interesting question. Well, I think what I would be most likely to say is um, I take us to be very confused at the moment <laughs> as a society. That is, we have lots of hard questions in front of us. Um, you know, we have an economy where some have done well and some have done very badly as globalization has caused fortunes to part. Um, we have high rates of immigration that put pressure on our conviction and our ability to build a cohesive culture. Um, the immigration brings economic value but puts strain on our cultural uh, sense of uh, community. Um, so we face great challenges, and I think in under the stress of those challenges, um, we're sort of wandering a little bit in the wilderness. So I do think libertarian values continue to play an important role in American political life. Um, I think when you, you know, uh, sort of dig, cut through the noise and so forth and identify the voices who are articulating uh, sound directions. You'll find across the spectrum, left and right, people who are just constantly and consistently wrestling with how to think about the relationship of liberty and equality to each other. I mean, those are the original questions of representative democracies. They will never go away as long as we're actually trying to secure a representative democracy. And I do think there's just continues to be lots of work to do for all of us to understand both of those concepts and how they can and should be mutually compatible with each other. So the Declaration of Independence, Lessons for Citizenship and in Challenging Times. I think we covered the challenging times part. <laughs> so maybe let's cover the lessons for citizenship part. Sure. Okay. What, so you, I don't want to give away my talk, though. Are you, you're asking for a teaser here for what yeah, the talk maybe is? maybe like three of the so lessons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, um, well, let's go back. I mean, I'm going to say a little bit of this tonight. Uh, let's take the healthcare debate. That's one of the issues you just alluded to in the prior question. Um, that's a debate that I think has caused sort of great tumult and confusion for us. Um, and I think one of the reasons it's been so hard is because we haven't separated what the Declaration of Independence identifies as the questions of principle from the questions of organizational form. You need an answer on both questions. That is to say, you need to know what principles you're using to shape your polity and your collective life. And then once you've kind of clarified that, you can get around to the business of figuring out what the right organizational form is. So what that means is underneath the healthcare debate, we're all having like a big, huge, raucous argument about whether or not healthcare is a basic right. 
that's the real argument. Most Democrats at this point pretty much think it is. Republicans are split on that view. Half of the Republicans actually sort of seem to think it is. The House's Better Way Health Plan talked about a right to access to health care. It's in the territory of a right to health care. But then half of the, the libertarian Republicans <laughs> don't think there's a right to health care. So that's our first argument. Um, and if we could actually achieve a sense of resolution or equilibrium there, it might be then easier to address the question of organizational form. So either you do think it's right or you don't. And if you do, well, then we've got a bunch of different organizational forms on the table. We've got the Affordable Care Act proposals. We've got the proposals in the Republican Better Way Plan and so forth. But right now we're kind of like muddling through trying to have the conversation about principle and the conversation about organizational form at the same time. And I think that we could have more productive uh, public conversations if we could clarify that distinction a bit. Right. And do you think uh, one of the reasons why we're having so much trouble with the business side of it is because we are losing principles or we're confused with our principles? Well, I'll tell you, I think it's because we haven't invested in education, the humanities and social sciences. I mean, that's where you learn how to think through principles clarify arguments, understand the logic of an argument, and use words to, again, clarify meanings with one another. Um, and that it's, it sort of sounds like it's too, how could they, that possibly be the case? That sounds like too easy of an answer. Um, but for example, I'm teaching a course called Foundations of Political Theory now at Harvard this semester, and the backbone of the syllabus is the Federalist Papers. Okay, so we're just reading those. A series of op-eds, right, written in newspapers in New York in the period leading up to the constitutional ratification. And I mean, I don't know how to say this other than bluntly. Like, there's, there's just no way you can read those essays and read what's in our papers now and not see an intellectual decline. I, you know, I, I challenge anybody to show me how it doesn't indicate an intellectual decline. And that's the decline that I think leaves us ill-equipped to have the conversations we need to have. Right. And you think it's an intellectual decline because we've been caring less about the humanities. and That's part of it. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. In terms of uh, our intellectual decline and our inability to talk about certain issues, one that you've really emphasized is the inability to talk about equality. Yep. And especially you've uh, written about how that was important to the Declaration of Independence. Do you think that the new kind of populist message that is being brought by the president to a party that previously didn't talk about equality much at all has something to contribute to that debate? Or do you see it entirely as a perversion of the kind of equality that you think the United States needs to talk more about? So I think that when the American people put questions on the table, it's always valuable and helpful. And so, yes, absolutely. 2016, gave us a period where a lot of Americans were putting on the table concerns about issues that they thought were going unaddressed. And I think that is, I mean, that's the value of elections is that they are the key discovery instrument for democracy. And by discovery instrument, I mean, they're the tool we use to figure out what matters, <laughs> what needs to be addressed, what the hard problems are. So yes, I do think we have an interesting um, moment of opportunity to dig into our understanding of what democracy is and to try to work together to answer these hard questions. So 
um, you know, I think there's an awful lot of stuff flying about, you know, the news media, et cetera, et cetera, the kind of public conversation, which is counterproductive. But I believe in the capacity of the American people to dig into these questions um, if they should see fit. So I, for example, I spend a fair amount of time trying to encourage people to re-engage in local and state level government. I think that there's a lot that we could do to build a more productive political conversation if people came back to the table of participation at that level. How do we incentivize people to engage in that kind of uh, political uh, processes when it's not put in the media at the same uh, level? They're not hearing it talked about by their friends and neighbors as frequently. How do we force people to reach out to something that's less accessible, even if it's closer? Yeah, no, it's a great question and it's a challenge. And this is one of those places where we suffer from the remarkable transformation of the media ecosystem because local and regional newspapers have declined at an extraordinary rate in the last decade. And it's true that there just isn't coverage of state houses the way there used to be. So one of the things I've been going around arguing for is that universities and colleges could build internship programs um, in partnership with national news organizations, for example, that would place students in think tanks and they'd spend half their time in a right-leaning think tank and half their time in a left-leaning think tank. And from the context of that think tank would cover state house issues because think tanks are still interested in what's happening in state level policy and most states tend to have a kind of pair on either side of the political spectrum. And so I think that there are ways we could go around kind of rebuilding coverage of state level political issues. And I think that's the kind, that's just the first part of the answer to your question. But I think we have to actually think about ways of rebuilding institutional structures that give people access to what's happening at a local level, as well as motivation for participating. So uh, one thing that I thought was very interesting uh, from your book, The World of Prometheus, uh, you talked about each member, the punisher, the punished in total society has a specific role to play in restoring equilibrium, right? And this mm -hmm. kind of goes back into local government. Everyone needs to participate at some level. My question is, uh, who is the punisher? Who is the punished in modern government? And can you explain what this equilibrium is? Sure. There's a lot in your question um, yeah. and a couple of important things to bring out. So one is, um, so for the ancient Athenians, the core metaphor that they used for thinking about wrongdoing and punishment was one of health. They were trying to cure the disease of anger that was caused by wrongdoing. And that meant curing the victim, that is making them whole, but it also meant curing the wrongdoer in some sense, um, leaving them in a position where they would no longer be causing difficulty in the society. So to some extent, they had extremely harsh punishments, execution more commonly than we would use it, for example. But they also had exile, which they used a lot, which actually gave people a chance of a fresh start. So what mattered was that they were gone from the community, but they could go off and start a new life. Um, and the recognition was that a lot of wrongdoing comes out of specific sets of relationships that have gone bad. And so if a person leaves those relationships behind, there is a meaningful chance of a, of a fresh start. So that was sort of how punishment worked in the ancient world. Um, in our contemporary world, um, of course, our criminal justice system is split between what we do at the state level and what we do at the federal level. Um, but this is actually a great example of why engagement at the state level matters so much. Um, we all, at this point, know we have this incredible incarceration system. You know, 2.2 million people in prison right now. It's the biggest system of imprisonment the world has ever seen. 
right? So we've outpaced apartheid South Africa. We've outpaced the Soviet Union in its totalitarian phases. So it's like, you know, this is a pretty remarkable prison system that we've got. The majority of those prisoners are held in, at the state level. So if one thinks we should be developing a different approach to criminal justice, um, perhaps rethinking whether our goal is deterrence only or some notion of making a community whole, then the work has to be done at the state level rather than at the federal level. Unfortunately, there's only time for one more question, which is the last question that we ask all of our guests. Uh, what's your personal definition of success and how would you help students identify it for themselves? Well, yes, I was warned, but that doesn't make it less difficult of a question. Um, I think at the end of the day, uh, success is um, feeling that you have a set of relationships, so family and so forth, and a body of work about which you can say, yes, my purposes, I've pursued my purposes consistently and done good. Well, thank you. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. Thank you, Professor, for joining us. And to all our listeners, remember to stay hungry. <laughs> Thanks very much for having me.